Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and my guest today is and Beyond CEO Joss Kent. Joss and I will be unpacking the concept of giving nature a chance in the context of wildlife reserve management. And we'll also touch on to the changing face of travel in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joss, thank you so much for coming back to chat to us once again. Welcome. This time I'd like to touch on some of the topics that you mentioned towards the end of your previous interview about the increased focus on sustainability and on nature that has come about as one of the very few positive effects of the COVID crisis. As a result of that, there's been a lot of talk about giving nature a chance and allowing for the regeneration of the world's wild places. This is something that and Beyond has had extensive experience with at Pinder Private Game Reserve, which was pretty much where and Beyond was born in the site of our first lodges. Can you talk a little bit about some of the learnings that and Beyond has taken out of the Pinder story over the past 30 years and about the successes and the challenges of that project? Certainly. Probably overall, it's, it's very difficult and it's not for the faint-hearted. And by that, I mean, it's not trying to put people off it. It's just mm-hmm. saying, if you're, if you're really not up for the challenge, you probably won't get there. <laughs> I mean, if you just look at the 30-year journey, I mean, that's the realities of it, right? You can, you can sit here and paint some grand story that mm-hmm. uh, Ambion Conservation Corporation started in this place. And Pinda was a, was a great success from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been blue sky and, and plain sailing since then. That, that's not the reality. This is very difficult. It takes time. It's taken a lot of tenacity, and you need a clear plan. And I think in the in the prior talk, we explored mm. what went right and what went wrong potentially in that thirty year journey. So mm-hmm. I won't sort of cover that off again. But in terms of what we've learnt, guests and communities are absolutely critical to the success of a of a reserve or a long term sustainability project. And that sounds a bit like common sense. Actually, delivering it day in day out. That's why we have a maniacal focus on guest feedback. They provide the revenue, they provide the profit. They are the mm-hmm. the way that we project our impact story in education, much wider than you can do through a marketing team. You know, they're, they're really the ambassadors of the model, every single one who comes through. And so, and so if you haven't delivered that, that's you, you've lost the opportunities. But that takes mm-hmm. a lot of focus, a lot of attention to detail. And obviously, we've covered off communities and shared value. And pretty much every research paper that you see always mm-hmm. puts communities at yes. the heart of, of this. That sounds easy to do. The realities of managing community expectations, stakeholder expectations, government expectations is very difficult. And it's as prevalent today as it was 30 years ago. So we have a whole team at Pinder today, 30 years anniversary, meeting with one of our community partners, trying to reestablish the forward plan. What do they need? What do they want? What do we need? What do we want? Probably the same questions asked 30 years ago. We're still asking them, right? So, so there's no quick fix, I guess what I'm saying. This is a permanent evolution. If you don't have the conversations, you can get in trouble. And to be frank, we, mm-hmm. we get in trouble quite a lot. Not mm-hmm. because we're, we're looking for trouble. It's just we're busy and there's, there's a lot to focus on. But if you leave behind communities or you leave behind staff or you leave behind guests, mm-hmm. you're never going to achieve the wider giving nature a chance plan. So it's, it's pulling it back from a, a really pretty PowerPoint presentation about strategy and impact and sustainability and let's look after the communities. Back to the real nitty-gritty of what it actually takes to 
to give mm-hmm. nature a chance. And we've learned from Pinda mm-hmm. and from lots of other places now, not just Pinda, whether it's on the oceans of Benguera, Bermizi, Number Island, whether it's in the desert in Namibia at Sossusvle, whether it's in the deep Serengeti in the tented camps or Grometi, whether it's in the Mara, Kichwa, and Battler, where we've had partnerships with WWF, really successful at Ngala, where we're starting to do project work and mm-hmm. conservation coalition work with Great Plains, mm-hmm. cross-border South Africa, Botswana, now with Africa parks as well, increasingly, both in the sea and on land. And now in, in South America, in Chile, and before COVID, yes. we were embarked nearly to launch our first lodge in, in Bhutan, based around cultural preservation more than anything else in Bhutan. So we, we've learned a lot over, the, over a long period of time. But fundamentally, if you lose sight of that three-legged stool and you lose sight of what it takes that should be sustainably profitable to deliver, doesn't matter what pretty PowerPoint presentation I put up, you're not going to get there. So think big, but the devil is in the detail. And it's the detail that really matters. And again, some fundamentals. Don't spend what you haven't earned because it will catch up with you. And in the end, the the people and the land that, that pays the price of that is the nature that you're actually trying to give a second chance to. Absolutely. The communities are a very, very important element and part of that, of course, but that's not the only thing that you have to manage and to take into consideration. A lot of talk about rewilding at the moment oversimplifies the challenges and sort of assumes that the world will be a better place if we just let nature run wild. But End Beyond's experience has told us that that's not nearly enough. In a modern world where there's limited space for wildlife sanctuaries, nature and the environment needs to be very carefully managed and nurtured. Could you talk a little bit about that and about the team that we have at Pinda that actually runs the reserve and manages the ecosystem? Yeah, I think we believe quite the opposite to that view that to rewild, you just have to let everything run to natural fallow, to use a term. The tourism has no place in there. We're quite at the opposite end of the spectrum, as revealed at Pinda. Rewilding does not mean abandoning or separating tourism from conservation. It means establishing a delicate partnership between people and the land and the wildlife. In fact, it's all about sustainable integration. How many people do you allow on? What are they going to pay for it? What's the balance between the purpose and the profit? What kind of teams are you building around the guest experience? So at Pinda, you've got your habitat teams, conservation teams, you've got your community development teams, and then you've got your lodge management teams, you've got your DMC teams, ground handling, etc. Pinda took a long time to get profitable. A long time. Decades. Because we were learning. If you advocated that Pinda should just be rewilded and tourism should leave, it's going to last about 12 months. It'll be gone. No income for the communities. You're not managing, actively managing the land or the wildlife. It'll be gone. Whether it's Pinda or elsewhere, the, the full rewilding story, I think, is fundamentally very flawed. I think a whole view post-COVID of sustainable tourism is very valid indeed, and that's where we mm. sit. We yes. sometimes take provocative views. One is around hunting, always a subject that immediately raises the hackles, and I'm sure even just raising it on this call, you know, just immediately ears prick up. What's he going to say about hunting? We're quite clear of our view of hunting. We believe within certain ecosystems on peripheral land that is not your core tourism land, where there's no other land use available, and therefore there's no income streams to the surrounding communities or incentivization in order to preserve those buffer zones. Ethical hunting, licensed hunting of certain species is 
actually a good income stream for those communities. It also, from lots of research, those buffer zones help the core area wildlife preservation and habitat management. So you have to distinguish between what your heart says sometimes and what your head says. When it gets to hunting, the heart, like all of us, speaks very loudly. But sometimes that's not the right answer. So there's some practicalities that we've learned at Pinder that I think inform our views. Sometimes it puts us in conflict with other people in the industry or competition or NGOs, but we stick by it because it's come from, from years of hard experience. So yeah, the, the tourism has to be integrated. It has to be done on a sustainable basis. If you look at what's happening in, as tourism bounces back for Barcelona, Venice, and all these other places. Venice, they've got rid of all the massive cruise ships. They've established a per day fee to enter Venice that goes into a sustainability fund. They've got a master control center where they use mobile phone signals to check the density of tourism traffic around the city. And when it gets too high in one place, they have active officials out there who then push those crowds into other areas. So that's not a game reserve, but it's a cultural conservation story. And they're both the same. We do the same. We know where our guests go. We've got the habitat teams actively monitoring all the species on Pinda all the time. Where are the lions? Where are the cheetah? Where are the pangolins? Where are the rhino? Where are the elephants? It's not different. But I think in there you can see that this picturesque view of rewilding, just walk away, leave it, look over the hill and it's all going to be okay. We don't advocate for that at all. We think active management, well done, with a solid strategy around how you're going to pay for long-term sustainability is the way to do it. That example of Venice that you just brought up, that's a really interesting one in, in the context. You know, we're at this really delicate balancing point where on the one hand, COVID has wrought so much devastation on the tourism industry and so many people who rely on it for an income. And everybody's looking to tourists to come back and hoping for good numbers and, and a fast inflow of tourists. But on the other hand, there's been so much of a spotlight placed on the effects of over-tourism. Talk about rewilding and, and all of those topics. In that context, how do you personally feel about the return of travel? I think I'm a bit Jekyll and Hyde about that question. <laughs> and in Jekyll and Hyde, I can't remember who's good and who's bad. But let's just, let's just say Jekyll's good and Hyde is bad. <laughs> the, the Jekyll side of it is what's coming out of this. The travel with purpose as a theme, as a sort of mantra, is now going mainstream. That's good for us. Sustainability, carbon strategy, mm -hmm. trying to reduce global warming, green energy investment from governments across the whole world is becoming mainstream. That's good for us. On that base, I'm actually very positive about the direction of overall travel post-COVID, because the more of that we can mm -hmm. get, the more they're moving into our frame of thinking. And you can see that across every geography, not just you know the big source markets, but um, pretty much a universal theme. Mm -hmm. so, so that's all much more aligned to our thinking and philosophy. It's low volume, high value, low impact tourism with... Yes core purchasing decisions made on your impact credentials, real mm -hmm. ones, not just greenwashing. And there's multiple surveys done over the last six months that say the same thing, that that's the direction of travel. So that's Jekyll. What's Hyde? We are a voracious species. We forget quickly. We like the quick fix. We'll buy what's in front of us. We'll buy the cheapest if it makes sense. We will quickly forget what happened to us in COVID. Maybe not quickly, relatively quickly. So mm -hmm. am I naive enough to think that we're entering this grand new era where all of those issues of the past have forgotten? I, I don't believe that at all. You know, come September, October, or next April, May, mm -hmm. will we see stories of, again, 
over tourism in certain places, degradation in others, too much building of hotels in places that can't support them. Mm. We'll see all of that, unfortunately. But I would like to think that it's imbalanced in that Jekyll is now winning over Hyde. And let's put it on a 65-35 split. 65% of the time, those decisions by governments, individuals, companies are going to be based on, on what we've talked about, trying to make the right decisions, making the right sustainability investments, creating the right tax structures, and taxing people when they do things wrong. 65% 65% of the time, leaving us 35% of the time where it's still not done right and we're still cleaning up issues. So overall, do you feel that um, as travel returns, that consumers are holding companies a lot more accountable or is it still a question of price dictating spend? Is it really the consumers that are looking towards companies to provide sustainable travel or is this a time when the industry needs to drive that internally? There are many sources of reputable research now overwhelmingly pointing to consumer purchasing being driven by sustainability impact track record and credentials. No question, especially from the younger generations. They're demanding it out the gates and they're making purchasing decisions against it. But you're also, you've got this whole boomer generation that people tend to overlook. They're the ones with the time and money. These are the 70-year-olds who feel like they're 35. And I'll tell you what, they've been around the world a lot. They understand the impact of climate change. They're increasingly driven by trying to do something about it. So I think you shouldn't overlook them on that. However, price does matter, but I think there's more elasticity in that price than there was before to accommodate prices that involve some sort of sustainability commitment. So we're, we're going to make some, some good ground there. At the same time, you know, the, the cruise industry is at a standstill still. And I don't mean to sort of paint the whole industry with one brush. There are a lot of great cruise companies, especially the more smaller specialist expedition cruises, river cruise companies, who've got incredible sustainability ethics. In fact, some of the big ones do too, in terms of how they built their boats. But I guess I just look somewhat head in dismay when I see 6,000 passenger cruise ships being launched with 300 foot helter skelter slides. And, you know, you can skydive on a cruise ship. So to your question, does price still dictate spend? Partly. Avarice and, in my mind, two-dimensional experiences drive the other half. Maybe I'm not, I'm not allowed to have that view. Maybe that's a, um, a view because I come from where I sit within and beyond and from my experiences. But I look from the outside in and say, do we, what do we really need in the world? Back to your question, you know, what do you think about the return of travel? I would like to think that some of these massive hotels so massive gambling centers, you know, oversized cruise ships with nefarious experiences. Do we really need that? Does the world need that? I don't think we do. But they will exist and they will grow. What we need to do is try and influence them to do it better and make sure that the impact is as small as we can possibly make it. Absolutely. The hospitality industry has seen such a lot of change in the past 18 months. There's so many brands that have gone under. We have lost a lot of talent. A lot of people have moved on to less risky industries. Do you think that this is a time of reckoning for the industry or is it an opportunity? Can balancing profit with purpose help to drive genuine change right now? I think it's an excellent question. And unfortunately, I don't view it as an opportunity. I think it's going to be one of the most serious issues we face. Because it doesn't matter how much we've talked about impact and you know mm. working for purpose or traveling with purpose. There is definitely a, a whole swathe of generation that walked into the industry mm. with eyes bright, wide open pre-COVID, 
And then they found the brutal realities of what it's felt like to be in the travel and hospitality sector for the last two years. And a lot of them can't make it. They can't make the numbers work. They don't see the upside. Uh, they can't see the future in it. And they have left to go do other things mm-hmm. and probably won't ever come back. That's a very definite issue for us. To a degree, you've lost a sort of mini generation through this. One would hope that when, when it's over, that the same principles that drive our guests to buy from us will continue mm-hmm. to drive certain subsects of people who are looking for companies that do it the way we do it, and they would like to come and join us. A lot of Gen Y, they, they just don't seem to have their, the heart for it in terms of actually just the, the hard, long-term grind within the industry. It can look pretty on the outside from anyone who's, whether they're tour consultants, they've worked in marketing, or they've run lodges, or they're in the Habitat teams. This, this industry is hard work. It's highly rewarding, mm-hmm. and no day is ever the same which is what's kept me so interested for so long. Genuinely, every day is different. I'm not sure there's many jobs that, um, or industries that kind of have that variability in it. But until you've experienced that, you can't value it. And my worry mm-hmm. is it's just people who would have given us a chance just won't. Um, they kind of steer clear going, well, what happens if COVID comes back? Um, so I think we have a very real issue in terms of a potential lost mini generation. But I do think, back to the purpose-profit equation, that that's a very powerful motivator for people to come into the industry and to, and to do it right. But the short term, the, the risky employment, we're seeing it in and beyond. I'm sure everyone in our sector is certainly, you know, outside of uh, yeah. what we do. You just have to look at all of the news across hospitality globally. You know, the travel and hospitality sectors really struggling to find people to, to work in it. Joss, what about travelers themselves? You know, you've spoken about the fact that people are increasingly looking for responsible travel. How can we as the travel industry make use of what's happened and the, the very unique sort of state of the world right now to shift people's minds to a more sustainable travel approach? I think we need to just bang the drum harder and we need to widen influence mm-hmm. wherever possible and share knowledge wherever possible. There's, there's no point sitting in an impact organization, conservation mm-hmm. company like, like ours, learn all the stuff I just talked to you about. And then think, okay, that's a source of competitive advantage. I'm going to keep all of that secret and let everyone else try and catch up for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. You're undermining the exact reason you exist. But if, if you could accelerate the learnings for anyone and everyone around you yes. to get there quicker to align, you're going to leave the world a better place. So we have, to a degree, obviously a, uh, an open source view on what we'll share with people. Our impact reviews are, you can download it now on the website. Hopefully, when you read through it, it shows you what we're trying to do. It gives you how far we've got. I hope it openly says where we have not achieved anything, why we haven't, what we're still trying to achieve. The impact review is riddled with those non-successful events. It's the non-successful events that are the area right for opportunity. But to answer your question, you've got to tell the story harder, sell it harder, get more guests through who then pay it forward when they get home and build these kind of coalitions of change where you get together with other organizations to try and propel that message harder and to a degree punch way above your weight. You know, we're, we're a small company. We're relatively large within our space, but I met a friend of mine last week who's the CEO of Warner Media. You know, we were talking about how the world is changing, digital streaming, obviously they own CNN, all the, you know, the studios. But I, we were just shaking our head going, what a time it's been to manage an organization through all this. I said, well, how many staff have you got? He goes, well, I've got 30,000 plus another 30,000 temporary staff. I just dropped my coffee cart. I was like, we've got 2,000. That's enough. 
Uh, the only reason I say that is within that half an hour conversation, I was able to, luckily he's an ambient guest, so he gets it. But I said, how can, how can I tell my story through your platform? You're 30,000 people, multimedia, global, you own CNN, for goodness sake. And, and we were able to say very quickly, okay, this is what you need to do, Joss. So, so that's it. Bang the drum harder and be proponents of the change and driving the story wherever possible um, and hope some of it sticks. Okay. Now, there really is a lot of talk around the sustainable development space at the moment. And there are a lot of topics that people are throwing around. Are there themes that you feel get a lot of airtime that are not necessarily particularly meaningful? And if so, do you think that there are other topics that people should be focusing on instead? Yes, I think the there is an overwhelming attempt to greenwash the whole agenda around sustainable development. Uh, and increasingly, because the consumers mm -hmm. are demanding it, and if you are not aligned in your strategy, and that you have this sort of CSR separation, the gap we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. if you're a company that has a gap, you're having to bridge it quickly because the government's demanding it, your clients and customers are demanding it. And so what do you do? What you do is you, you put a kind of stepladder from one side of the crevasse to the other, and you, you run from one side to the other, saying we are, we are, we are, when you're not, because that crevasse is going to open up and swallow you up because it's not sustainable. So I think there's a, there's a whole attempt mm -hmm. at greenwashing going on. I think the mm -hmm. people are clever. Yes. And therefore, back to our banging the drum harder, we need to be more open with our data, more open with our successes, more open with the granular details about what we mean about care of the land, wildlife, and people. What is our impact strategy? Where are we headed? Etc. One of the things that's never talked about in any of these things, which drives me mad, is population mm -hmm. growth. Population growth is the elephant in the room. It is not talked about. Politically, it's difficult in many countries. But if you don't deal with it, it underpins a lot of the conservation issues that we all yes. face as not, not just Africa, Asia, and South America, just mm -hmm. globally. There has to be a shift in our mm -hmm. view on population growth and how we're going to contend with it. Not just always developing, trying to catch up with our own numbers. You know, Africa's population will double again by 2050. Population will double. Conservation areas will reduce mm -hmm. by another 60% over the same period. Mm -hmm. You'll need 2x times the food to feed everyone. So, so, so those, are, those are the facts. I don't have mm -hmm. the answers, but I'm saying, and it's not just Africa related, mm -hmm. population growth and sustainability, well, it, it's all connected to everything else, right? You know, the other thing is, what is true clean energy? As we get into climate change and carbon reduction, there's a lot of carbon washing going on there too, and that'll get more important. But in the end, you're just deceiving yourself. You, mm. you can deceive the markets, you can deceive your shareholders, you can deceive your employees. But in the end, if that global temperature does not get down below one and a half percent growth, we are in deep trouble. So mm. you can mm. greenwash, carbon wash, clean energy wash all you like. But if we actually really don't deal with the underlying issue and mm. grapple with it, we all pay the price. And it's not just in conservation areas, as, as we've, we've talked about. It doesn't matter where you sit, whether you're in Delhi, Kabul, Johannesburg, London, New York, Tokyo, mm -hmm. that climate change issue is, is huge. And as a global population, we'd better, we'd better deal with it, including population growth. So they're very inescapable realities that that we need to deal with and we can do it better if we all share knowledge and work towards a common goal. Correct. Perfect. Just, just to end off with, 
Are there any brands in the conservation or the responsible travel place that you particularly admire at the moment? And if so, why? I would say over the last two years, obviously, I talked about coalitions of change. And we've built quite successful conservation coalitions in certain areas over mm-hmm. time yes. that have really worked and, and proven at a very small scale what you can do. Rhinos Without Borders, we work with Great Plains Conservation, mm-hmm. who's obviously a direct competitor, but we moved a lot of rhinos because we did everything for rhino. Oceans Without Borders, we have partners in there. Oceans for Families, which is a philanthropic organization that's funded Oceans Without Borders. Uh, their long-term mission mm-hmm. to us is, is really important. And in in the same vein, we've looked out for other organizations, competitor or not, who we'd like to work with going forward. For me, I would say the two coming out of this that I'd like to strengthen those bridges with that have proven quite effective, especially through the COVID crisis. The first would be African parks, big plans, real impact, real detail, fully integrated. And they've done what many people would have not even dared to try. They are the real deal. We are increasingly doing work with them across our portfolio. And I could see us developing a really strong partnership over a long period of time that's actually going mm-hmm. to deliver. So we really like them. Singita. It's funny when um, I think Warren Buffett's great quote about investing is, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Well, the COVID crisis has revealed how lots of different companies have dealt with everything. And we covered that off in the, the, the last talk. What commercial disciplines did they take? When profit and purpose met in a dark alley, who actually won? In some, it was brutally clear. Who from the ethics and, and how they went about things? How did they deal with us? How did they deal with communities? How did they deal with our clients and guests? The standout for me was Singita. We've got the same philosophy. We've got aligned views. They've managed their staff and their reserves in the way that we have. We've talked a lot between Luke Bales and myself about how we can work together as two organizations to scale impact. And I think there's a real interest from both yes. of us to take that conversation forward and say, well, what if, what if Singita and Nam Beyond you know, joined forces? And that's not some, to be really clear, that's not a, uh, this is about impact, not, not the companies, but our influence in the conservation space. What if we joined forces and we could get five times the impact by working together than we, if we, than working individually. And I think there's I think there's an appetite from them to do it. There's certainly an appetite from my side to do it. So uh, Singita would be another. In the NGO space, starting to develop uh, relationships with the likes of Flora and Fauna International and the Nature Conservancy. Two big international NGOs, great science, great projects, great knowledge, great experience. And again, it's around this coalitions of change and conservation coalitions. And if we can find more partners like that, we would do so. One final one, not the traditional conservation space. We're trying to build bridges with the big tech companies, especially Google. If you look at the use of technology in the conservation space and the application of it, Google have whole teams applied to this. Um, they've expressed a real interest and they're, they're using data to really drive large-scale conservation impact. And so we'd love to build bigger bridges with them. Have you found that there's increasing appetite for those kinds of you know, coalitions or partnerships, you know, not just between companies that on the surface are competitors, but also between companies that don't seem to have all that much in common, like you mentioned, and beyond and Google? Do you think that's a growing trend? Uh, I'm not sure on the answer to that one. As I found out within the projects we've worked, mm-hmm. it, again, it's very difficult 
uh, especially if it's between two competitors. It's natural human instinct to, to protect your mm-hmm. own fiefdom. Teams fight for themselves. People are proud. We've all got egos, including me. You have to manage all of that to get the right outcome. I do think by default, people are seeing the validity of that no single company or platform can do all this on their own. And there's a, uh, a polit- political reckoning to create ecospheres that make that better for people to work together than not. And by that, I mean in terms of green infrastructure funding from governments mm-hmm. across the world. You know, America's just launched a 2.1 trillion infrastructure plan. Most of that is around green energy and green infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is underneath that, once the government says, we're going to give you tax credits, we're going to make this happen for you, we're going to pump a bunch of money into this alongside you. For the big companies, when they look at that and say, fine, okay, that's mm-hmm. great. Could we do that, This the, the size of these projects on our own, or should we combine with someone else? And we're starting to see them combine with other people because the competition is kind of gone. You're now fighting... You've got to fight together to get there rather than against each other to get there, if that makes sense. And I think you'll see more and more of that come into conservation, I hope. One of, one of the problems with, with the conservation space is sometimes it's driven too much by the heart and not by the head. To really get outcomes, mm-hmm. we're going to have to be balanced between heart and head. Absolutely. Thank you, Joss. I think you've given everybody a great deal of food for thought in terms of the way forward for travel, conservation, responsible travel. The, the challenges and also I think a lot of hope and thank you again for taking the time to chat to us. Very welcome. Some really interesting questions there and I hope hope it's given everyone a bit of food for thought but you know, final word is as I said we're doubling down. We think our, our mission is really important, more important than ever and we're going to be here in 10-15 years time, hopefully across 50 million acres of land rather than the 10 we're on now. That's a very clear statement of purpose. Thank you Joss. Mm-hmm. There you go. Amazing. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.